Welcome to Sustainable Non-Fungible Talk, a show about all things DAO and Web3 from the team of Sustainable. I'm your host today, Li Ning. So today we have two lovely friends here, Ian Carr and Stevie Klein. They are the co-GP of Volume 1 Ventures, an emerging fund that aims to write the first check to back exceptional operators and promising pre-stage companies from fintech, crypto, and biotech sectors. Hi, Ian. Hi, Stevie. It's a great honor to have you guys here. Hey, Hi. how are you? So Thanks excited for, to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Ian, I'll start with a question about you. So I know that you have started your career as a journalist uh, writing about fintech and crypto, and later on you move on working the fintech industry and founded a fint- fintech today. Would you like to share with our audience your background and what led you to the past to start Volume 1 Ventures? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, fun fact, I actually started out at a hedge fund in 2009, focused on mortgage-backed securities restructuring. So I was an analyst there and was seeing firsthand about how a lot of strategies were all around people losing their houses and firms making money. And I thought it was a bit disingenuous. Also, I was in this analyst role and I was realizing that all this financial stuff is pretty antiquated and a lot of technology could be used to make it not just you know simpler, faster and easier, but just reinvent the way it works fundamentally. So that sort of piqued my interest in the fintech sector. I wasn't too thrilled about being in finance. So I switched gears and I always loved writing since a young age. So I ended up a journalist initially at Newsweek and then at Quartz, which is a division of the Atlantic at the time, mainly covering fintech. So about two and a half years, I was one of the first fintech reporters in the ecosystem covering the intersection of banking, technology, and these new startups that were coming up like Chime back then, I covered the launch of Chime, which is now a $42 billion company. So it was really exciting to be on the ground floor. And I was like 21, 22 at the time. So I was seeing all this change and seeing all my peers working in these sectors. And I was like, oh man, this would be really fun to work in. So I taught myself a lot about product management, tried to build some products on my own and get some experience there. And eventually made my way to a company called Acorns which is out in Newport Beach. Worked at Acorns for about a year, building a lot of fun stuff around financial literacy, which I am very passionate about to this day. Debit cards, IRA products, helping with the marketing and the copy around Acorns. I wore a lot of different hats, which was really exciting to be at an early stage company that was growing really fast. Yeah, so at Acorns, that there was a lot of infrastructure layer improvements that needed to be made to the ecosystem. We were still using the same infrastructure providers that banks used. And I, at the time, I wasn't super interested in the infrastructure side. I wanted to work on the consumer side and things like that and be a bit more front-facing. Made my way to a whiny commerce company where I was the head of product, and which was a subscription company, also had an e-commerce layer. So I was my only foray out of fintech and crypto. But yeah, I spent the, a year and a half there really getting a lot of managing, management skills, hiring skills, and really taking a product to the next level. Learned a lot there, but also at the end of my time, I was itching to start a company. And that was right around the time that all this banking of the service stuff was popping up in, in fintech, making it easier to for fintech companies to get started. And so I, I sort of rejiggered my interest in fintech. And yeah, so a couple buddy. so this is the fun story about fintech today. It originally started as my friends and I were thinking about doing a banking of the service company. And then I was like, oh, I know this from the e-commerce world, but commerce and commerce was used a lot of content and community to have a really strong go-to-market funnel, get people interested in your product by talking about it and writing about it and developing a community around it. I was like, why doesn't people do this in B2B fintech? That was the original inception of FinTech Today to gather a lot of operators and founders that could potentially use a banking as a service API layer that we would eventually provide. Then, a, you know, FinTech Today grew so fast that my friends were like, you should focus on this. They went off to do their own projects as well. So yeah, I've spent about two and a half, three years building FinTech Today, which was a really great experience. I think I learned a lot about the value of content and community, not just from a company perspective, but also from a venture capital an angel investor perspective as well. Yeah, I ended up selling it in February and me and Stevie were thinking about what kind of things to do next. And that's when we came up with the idea of Volume 1 Ventures to partner both our expertise in in across regulatory and compliance and go-to-market and help pre-seed companies get 
uh, get started and get to that, ne- help them hit their milestones faster, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, that's sort of my, my whole background, how we ended up at volume one. That's cool. Yeah, I'll get back to you guys later asking more about the fund. But I would like to also ask Stevie. I got to know Stevie a while back uh, when Stevie was there running a, a female's healthcare company. Uh, and then you are an established lawyer before. And then you moved to biotech. And then now you work on... <laughs> Uh, you work as a fund manager. Yeah, so tell us more about your background and uh, yeah, what led you to starting one. I, I feel like everyone just needs to settle in because it's a journey. <laughs> I'm really honest with people that how I ended up here, this is not where I thought my career would go. I, I, um, I, I grew up on a dairy farm in Ohio. And I thought that I was going to be a veterinarian when I was younger. I was like, I'm going to be a vet. I had my undergraduate in animal sciences. I lasted one day in vet school, passed out when there was a cauterization happening in the room (laughs) and woke up in admissions. And they were kind enough to tell me to probably find another professional career. So decided I was going to be a lawyer. My mom was a lawyer. I was like, it can't be that hard. Thought I was going to be an environmental lawyer. I was like, yeah, I'm going to fight for animals. Yeah. Little do people know my thesis in law school was actually about whaling. So it was about the Mm -hmm. legality of the whaling industry in international waters. So if you ever really want to get me on a a deep-seated rant, it's about (laughs) any kind of marine mammal life. It was just something I spent a lot of time on, but it turns out there's absolutely no money in that. Unless you want to just travel around and watch Greenpeace ships all the time. There's nothing there. So decided I needed to get a job that actually made money. Went and after law school, became a tax lawyer at one of the top five firms in New York. I was the youngest person there. I was the youngest partner there in the end. But the funny thing about being the youngest person in the room in taxes is taxes touch everything. So I ended up working in M&A. I ended up working a lot with tech transfer. I ended up working a lot with people who were pretty much in every area of business, just having regulatory issues, having compliance issues, just because so many things end up touching tax. Like my clients literally ran from chefs to universities, huge companies that we now look up to now. So it was definitely a weird time in my life. I got to see a lot of companies get bought by people like Facebook and Google. And it was interesting to rep those founders at the time because they were so young, so amazing. And then you'd sit down with them and you're like, here's how much taxes, here's what your tax liability would be. And they're like, is there any way I can make a Ferrari, like a purchase that's not taxable here? And you're just like... (laughs) Okay, I think I need to, I think it's time to move on when I'm buying 17 year old founders Ferraris because they don't have bank accounts. <laughs> it was a special time in my life. So I also didn't really have, definitely had the typical big law experience. I didn't have much of a life. I tended to work a lot and decided to move on, ended up going to Johns Hopkins. They had been people I was close to professionally. And It was an interesting experience. I went to China right away for Hopkins, so ended up spending most of my time there in China, which was a really interesting experience, seeing IP that Hopkins developed go from, you know, just an idea into practice and into healthcare organizations in China within a few months was amazing to watch. When you would see that in the United States, it would take forever. They're like, yeah, this will come to market in three to five years. Whereas in China, they could get it to market a lot faster. So that was really exciting to see, but it really whet my appetite to healthcare because there was just so much really cool things being built in healthcare. And healthcare is also something that just innovation is taking off right now. There's so much that's happening. There's It's second by second. There's just so much change. I had taken a pretty heavy interest in genetics there just because, again, they had a pretty robust IP package around that. And also... Growing up on a dairy farm, we used genetics quite like quite a lot. So I was pretty familiar with genetics from an animal sciences perspective and like livestock perspective. So it was something that I had an interest in. I left Johns Hopkins to go work at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So it's the medical society that governs women's health. Obviously, women's health as a woman is important to me. I think it should be important to everyone else. Loved my time at ACOG, still very close to everyone there. I think they're doing amazing work. They always will be doing amazing work and we will always support them in anything they do. But 
I definitely got the itch to do something as a business. There's a lot of pros and cons about working at nonprofits, and medical societies are a nonprofit. So there definitely was some administrative restrictions that you just were like, we can do all these things. No, we can't. And, and there's also a lot of frustrations just with the way the American healthcare system is. So left ACOG to start my own biotech that was around women's health. It was predicting pregnancy complications with genetic testing. Loved it. It was definitely something that I was very passionate about. It's what I was working on when Ian and I met, which continued to confuse him when we first met, when I was giving him tax advice and I was a (laughs) biotech founder. (laughs) Very confusing time for him. But yeah, it's definitely a hard place to be. Women's health is a hard space. And it's also something that I remain passionate about. I really do. But shutting, we, we did have to shut our startup down. And that's a really hard thing to do when you're in women's health and you're a woman. When, a, when I was kind of not in the happiest place with healthcare, I went back to law, started doing a lot of work for crypto companies. I was a part of the first team that did cryptocurrency litigation when I was a lawyer. It was nice to get back into law. It was nice to get back into kind of something that it was a very familiar place. I love to see the innovation. And it's something that being able to see these companies build and being able to see the innovation that they're working on is super exciting for me. So that's why no matter what we were working on in volume one, I knew that there was going to be a space that I would be really passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that also both Stevie and I have always wanted to do things that help people. My father was an ER doctor in New York and in England and India for 25 years. I would always hear stories about like him saving people from gunshot wounds and stuff like that. Helping people manage their finances was really fulfilling to me at Acorns. What really drew me to the role at Acorns was that in financial, like the financial literacy in America is abysmal. I think it's something like 40% of Americans don't know what an IRA is or something insane mm-hmm. like that. Like it's not, you're not taught about personal finance in, educa- in public education or private education, really. Like everyone just assumes your parents are going to teach it to you, yeah. but sometimes your parents don't even know. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of fundamental Im- improvements that we can make to society by solving a lot of these core problems. And I do think that private companies are the best way to solve these problems too. Mm-hmm. Driving innovation through that mechanism is something that we're really passionate about. And I think this wealth creation is really important, but also pass- making enabling wealth creation for other people. I think that's what's so exciting for crypto, in my yeah. opinion, make, making it much more of a self-ownership and having the unbanked problem in the U.S. is something that I think about like on a daily basis almost. I definitely think about it on an hourly basis when I was working at Acorns. And I think that there are so many different ways to solve these problems. I think crypto is a really interesting way. I think, unfortunately, there's some bad actors that, mm-hmm. that can lead to a lot of losses. And it's pretty catastrophic when that happens. But I think it's up to us as a society to not just regulate that, but also protect each other from it too. Yeah. So speaking of the regulation, yeah. So Stevie also mentioned that like the crypto like legislation area hasn't been changed much since uh, during the past decade. So <laughs> yeah. like this week, people have been talking about the not so good news about FTX. <laughs> yeah. For people who don't know what it is, it's so FTX is a crypto exchange, which was valued at 32 billion at its peak. And it's now it's in jeopardy of collapse. They went bankrupt today. Yeah. yeah they oh, filed for, for bankruptcy. They filed for yeah. Yeah. All yeah. 134 subsidiaries are bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. And for everyone who's, no, it's Bahamas, it doesn't matter. They all file uh, for bankruptcy in the US. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think that actually reflects the volatile nature in the crypto market. But I think another part, it's like, it's probably like shows as a consequence, no, what happens, no, when things, no, when the, when things lack of regulation. So Stevie, as a legal expert, so what happened? <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's, I think there's a ton here to really, really start to unravel. I think the biggest thing is it's public now. A lot of the, a lot of the entity formation for FTX has leaked. A lot of their org charts have leaked. You really start to see it when you start to unravel what they had built. It was incredibly complicated, but it was in, also basically just setting up a system for somewhere there to be activity that was going to harm someone. Like you can just see from the relationships and you can see from the agreements within agreements that this is really setting up a system where it's easy for there to be commingling. It's setting up a system where there's a lot of opportunities for you to have like money laundering and things happen that we just really want to protect against for consumers. So anytime you see something set up in a way that is opening that door. I think that is Pandora's box that we need to keep shut. I really hate to say this, but 
when you are setting up crypto companies, you you don't want to set them up with how do we make it as untransparent and opaque as mm -hmm. possible. You really want to set them up as how can we protect the money coming in, not just our investors, but also consumers, re investors, whether they're retail or consumers. We want to make sure that this money is protected. And I think as, a, as cryptocurrency has grown, if people building these companies aren't thinking about that, then they're really not building for anyone's best interest. And that's really – that is honestly what collapses mm -hmm. the whole industry, and it's what's happening now. Yeah. I think there are really good ways to set up entity structures for cryptocurrency companies. Um, but when you're – it's really starting them off from scratch, correct? And I think probably what happened is they set up a system that was easy and quick – and then they had to grow from there. And I think they also knew that they were moving money in ways that they wanted to probably shield themselves from liability and they probably wanted to shield their investors from liability. But that complicated structure is really at a certain point. It's, yeah, the only other person using this kind of structure is laundering money in their arms <laughs> dealers in third world countries. So it's so convoluted and yeah. unnecessarily. Like Stevie and I do a lot of work for Stevie and I. Stevie does a lot of work for a lot of the companies that we work with around corporate entity formation and stuff like that because we're a pre seed fund. So it's really important to get all that. But the simpler it is, the more easy it is to work with regulators. Yeah. The, also, the more, yeah, that's exactly it. Is if you, if, you would have taken their corporate entity structure to any country that has a pretty decent consumer protection agency, they would have told them to take a hike. It just wouldn't have worked yeah. just because the risks were inherent in what they were doing. I think that's something that the industry really need does need to take a hard look at is think about what how are you growing your entity? How are you starting your entity? Like Ian said, we work with companies. We try and be the first check-in. And really what that means is I want to be there from the start of, are you making good legal strat? Are your legal strategies actually going to work long-term, short-term? Are you setting up your entity structure in a way that we're not going to have to go in 10 years later and fix? Is it easy to grow from? Are regulators going to understand if you do get bankrupt? That's worst case scenario, all companies, maybe this is because I had to shut down a company. I'm really aware of this, but like, is your... What are you going to do when you actually have to shut down a company? I don't really want to talk about that, but that is really important. It's kind of a arduous process. It's a really, it's a really arduous process. Let me just tell you all that. But also, when you're dealing with money from people, it gets even more arduous. But also, if you have to unravel some of these transactions, if it is so convoluted, that it just, it just increases the chance that you're going to go to jail. And that's not something you want to see from anyone. And so I think a lot about that when we're working with these companies is like, are you making the first choices in the right direction? Or are these things that it's going to cost millions of dollars and years to fix? And so from a legal and regulatory perspective, we do really deep dive in that area with our companies, no matter if they're in crypto or not. The same thing goes for healthcare, because wrapping up a healthcare company, if you're in a clinical study, I how are we going to wrap up this clinical study? Who's going to take over the IP? Is the IP worth taking over? Or is it, you know, I think that's also a conversation we've had to have with a couple of biotech companies is, yeah, your IP actually isn't worth anything right now because to restart a clinical study or to do the study in a way that is, is going to give this some oomph behind it, it's going to cost millions of dollars. And at that point, that's a whole new company. It's a hard conversation with companies to be like, we could have done this better from the start, but it is really important. Yeah, I think the one, something, it's funny, I was writing this article on the way here, but uh, I think something else to really mention around the FTX stuff is I'm not really sure why everyone thought it was a good idea to rewrite these natural laws of finance. Like mm -hmm. in 1933, the Glass-Steagall Act passed in the US and Stevie and I were talking about this. She's the banking historian. I just like love like reading about it and learning about it. But I was thinking about it, like in most in traditional finance, you don't commingle investment trading arms and bank depository companies, right? There's laws to prevent that because it led to the Great Depression. And you wonder why people think they're above these existing laws. And I always think about history as something to leverage and build upon, not rewrite and say that, oh, these rules don't exist for me. That usually is ingredients and a recipe for a not great outcome. And I think that's what happened here, like Alameda and FTX, commingling these different assets and commingling these different properties with different strategies. It just doesn't really end well. Well, and you end up with a great valuation at one point, but if things go, if one domino falls, the domino effect is massive. Yeah. And they usually the worst, the worst 
people out of this whole situation are the consumers and are the customers that whose deposits you're playing around with. So yeah, it's just, it's a shame to see, but like, it's also, I wonder if it was really preventable if you just thought about, hey, no one does this. We probably shouldn't try it either. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on that just because, um, yeah, I happened to go get a an MBA, an LLM, and a PhD. I don't know what the fuck I was doing, to be really honest <laughs> with you. That was a lot of work. But I think a lot about that from an economics perspective because the history of why our systems are set up the way they are is really important in this country. If you actually just go back to how Alexander Hamilton set up everything. There's a reason for it because we've had all of the mistakes happen with our own dollar. The United States dollar has a really interesting history and I would suggest any single person that wants to get into cryptocurrency understand the US dollar because there's a reason it has stayed stable for so long and it's also there's a reason our treasury has become the gold standard for other places because we've tried some stuff in our country. I think if you look at, you know, there to be you were talking about the 1860s yeah i mean if you think about what happened during like the civil war if you think about there have been times where we've had fake banks there have been times where we've had fake currency all over the place thinking about during the civil war it was a very interesting time for the u.s dollar because it was growing pains and i think that's really where i think there's a lot of kind of similarities to where we are now with cryptocurrency. I think we're in that same kind of space where the growing pains are getting more and more interesting. Thankfully for the United States, during the Civil War, we had we did have banks that were pretty stable that had really significant investments back in Europe. And that really helped buoy the system more than I think a lot of people realized at the time. We do now. Banks essentially bailed out the U.S. government and our dollar. And I think that's something where, especially it's hard to hear when you have people that are now, they don't like banks, they don't like the government, and now they want cryptocurrency bailed out. And you're just like, that's not how any of this works. Also, the entire time you've been pitching, oh, we're above regulation. We're not a financial ecosystem. We don't need to regulate us like banks or the financial ecosystem. But then you also want the benefits of a bailout. Seems yeah. a bit paradoxical to me. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's so many thoughts about, that people have on DeFi and crypto. And we, we really want to dig into the philosophy of why it works. But I think the philosophy of why it works doesn't – like sometimes that flies in the face of actually – doing what needs done. To say that generational wealth can be grown without certain baseline standards is irresponsible, especially when, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, for a whole long while, we were really like, we don't need regulations because we can self-regulate. And I don't know any instance anywhere where in any financial system that has ever worked. I think the last time we talked about that happening, that was probably the ruble in the 80s and that we can ask people Russian history to find out how that went and it, it wasn't pretty. It didn't go well. Just, Long didn't, story short. Spoiler alert, it didn't go well. So I think there's really a lot of parallels that people just don't understand history. They don't understand the economics but behind why decisions were made or historically why we did things the way we did. And I think that's really important. And I would encourage anyone, honestly, that is entering the cryptocurrency space now to take a hard look at the financial systems, not just in this country, but some of the more stable and some of the more run central banks to figure out why they make the decisions they make, because it is really important. And also the opposite too, the ones that aren't really yeah. well run. You can see that the problems are really glaringly obvious if you look like at ex examples and stuff like that of developing countries or countries that have had difficulties getting their fin financial ecosystem in in straightened out. I think it's, oh wait, okay, this actually doesn't work. This is why. I studied, I was a double major in economics and political science in college and did a lot of academic work around African politics and the macroeconomic effect of US aid that went to Africa and you realize, oh, okay, this was just fraudulent. And we shouldn't then like there's a lot more transparency necessary in like that area and things like that so once you study i think all these different ecosystems you take lessons from them all but i think it takes a it's a lot of work to go back and look at all this history but it definitely pays dividends for your company over time yeah i think that's critical to have a like legal expert with the team or in the team to when the company start want to make sure that things are done correctly from the first step. This is the whole point of volume one. I think what we realized over the last couple of months is what Stevie's been working as an interim general counsel for a couple of companies. The issue is for a lot of these companies, especially at the pre-seed and seed stages, 
is that this is an expensive cost, right? If hiring an outside legal firm, having an outside lawyer, having an internal general counsel means you have to raise more money, means you have to give up more dilution, means you have to give up more of your company from the get-go, right? First of all, it's sometimes you know, might not have the capability to raise more than you can, right? Not These five on 50 term sheets aren't floating around anymore. <laughs> and then on the opposite side, hiring a general counsel or hiring like an engineering team, it's like a really important trade-off for a founder. And I think what we've learned is that we can step in, we can be the interim op operational general counsel, help you. Yeah. It's templated at this point. And yeah. I think there's a lot of work that we do that kind of goes into other companies so that we can step in and say, hey, we can be roll up our sleeves, get our hands dirty on a lot of this stuff and help you get to the point where you will be able to raise the next round of capital and hire general counsel with that additional capital. Yeah. And I think the sad thing is we've had more than enough conversations with founders, more than I would have expected and more than I really care to keep having with founders who are launching products in the financial space or have already launched in the financial space, whether it be traditional finance, fintech, crypto. And they, when they talk to me, even if they don't talk to me as a lawyer, if they talk to me as a VC, I'm literally the first lawyer they've talked to. And that is really scary because you're just like, you've not run this by anyone at all. And they're like, no, we don't. We don't, or they have a really, the only lawyer they've talked to is the person that did their formation documents mm, or something yeah. like that. That is scary because the companies might be trying to operate on a very lean budget, which we do understand, but no matter, the regulators don't care what your budget is. <laughs> they don't care what your budget is. They care that you took money from consumers and you launched a product that impacts consumers. And that's, I don't think they understand that. They're like, oh, we're too small. And it's like, Plenty of small companies get letters from regulators that they don't like. It's unavoidable if you're in this space. Yeah. It's an important trade-off, but I think that there are solutions around it too, right? I know like that's what that's our whole thesis. But yeah, we talk to founders all the time. And it's, oh, we haven't raised enough to, to hire an internal lawyer, but you need to figure out solutions, whether it's getting lawyers on your cap table as investors, getting a legal counsel to take equity instead of cash. There's a lot of, there's, you need to be creative in the solutions, but the importance of regulation and compliance and having that right from day one can't be underestimated. And I think we have a little bit overestimated that as an ecosystem for the last couple of last five or so years. Yeah. So we are talking about the thesis of, of volume one. What would be your, how do you select founders or companies that, you know, you would put your first check in? Yeah. So I'm going to be really honest here. When I look at companies, it's who we together can add value with. From a regulatory perspective, one of the first things that I usually have to go in and start chopping up is people's content. <laughs> it's usually the first thing, their content and community, they're usually out there marketing things that you're just like, oh, you can't say that. I need you to not make any guarantees. You can't say percentages. You like, mm -hmm. this is not what you think it is. And having someone like Ian that I can bounce ideas off and someone like Ian that can actually go in from the go-to-market perspective and say, this is how you do it in a compliant way is really important because it is a team effort. Because if I have to work with a go-to-market strategy that is really just a little too baked in and too concrete, it you do start to feel very you, – you feel teams getting defensive mm -hmm. and you feel them getting very protectionary over what they've created. So when we can go in and have that teamwork, it's really helpful. So Ian was playing the good cop and you're the bad cop. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. It's funny because I've only worked in as a PM in regulated sectors. So yeah. fun fact, the wine and alcohol ecosystem in the US is highly regulated. Yeah. So you can only ship, like for instance, you, for certain, you can only ship certain milliliters of wine to different states. You can only ship like certain uh, amount of wine to different addresses. There's all these weird convolutions. So we actually just hard-coded that legal code into our framework back at that company, the wine company I worked at. So most most of my PM experience has been working with uh, in, in regulated industries, and that means a lot of working with legal. And I think that's something that we want to show and explain and educate a lot of product teams and founders about, like, how is the, and luckily I was, work, I was lucky enough to work at a great place like Acorn, which is a fully registered broker dealer, like a really great, really great in terms of regulatory transparency and working with the compliance teams from a product perspective. So we had product, we had compliance folks working with product on a day-to-day -day basis, really. And I think being able to share those learnings with portfolio founders and saying, hey, here's how we did things at Acorns and it worked great for them, I think has been really fun. And I think something that we're excited to dig deeper into. I think 
building the right foundations of how your product is developed and iterated and improved upon over time can have compounding effects for the company, mainly because you, once you get it right, this, then you bring on new people and you teach them how to do it right. And then it's, it spreads as a company, company culture. Right? And I think that's something that we're really excited about. And from the go-to-market side, I think there's so much there it's the easiest simplest way to get tripped up with regulators your marketing like and there's so many examples of i think voyager is a really good example right voyager is a company that went under pretty recently got bought by ftx funny enough <laughs> but they had so much marketing around oh grow your wealth keep your assets safely stored with us and like it was on their website as they were going bankrupt and like that is you, they don't they the bank partner came out and said that you weren't not actually FDIC, we haven't granted these guys FDIC insurance. So like they're, you're going around making claims of safe, safety securing assets when they're not actually safely secured. It's just an easy way to get tripped up and add a lot more regulatory headache. So I always try to work with teams to make sure the marketing is really on point. And so that product and legal are working hand in hand versus what happens, what ends up happening at a lot of early fintech, older fintech companies from back in the day, a very like in an antagonistic perspective of like them working against each other. That doesn't really create the best result. You got to work with the legal team as a product manager to get the get your product out the door, but also in a compliant and highly regulated way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And for our thesis, I think the important thing is we really do focus on sectors where regulations are really important. And so for us, I think that is where that go to market paired with the regulatory focus. We really want to make sure we're saving people time, money, effort. Getting tripped up on these things can set you back years. You can spend years trying to fix a mistake that the FDA has told you about in healthcare where they're just like, yeah, your clinical study, you only had 2% minorities. We're not accepting your five-year clinical study. And you're just like, how did nobody catch that? Uh, Very clearly are are regulatory things in the spaces we operate in where it's like, we know that these are things that people get tripped up on. We know these are easy fixes. We know that also we can move the needle on that to help save people. I think that's the biggest thing for us is like, how much are we moving the needle? Time and money are we saving you? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's really is like how much time, how much money. And the- we've seen a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and I think once you see that you can shepherd these companies in the right way by saying, hey, we know that another company that did something similar got got a big fine, things like that. Oh, so yeah. I think that's something. So the time and the money aspect is the, what we talked about earlier, hiring an uh, internal lawyer, internal general counsel is expensive. We can offload a lot of that cost. But I think the time is a bit underrated. If we can help you get to market faster, help you get to your seed or series A faster, that has profound effects for your company. Yeah, especially since on our team, we do some lobbying as well. And so we really want to operate in spaces where we know we have a position of power and we're coming we're coming to the space in a position of, you know, we know the people we need to talk to that can move the needle in a healthy, safe way versus taking doors in that maybe we shouldn't go into because in the long run, that's going to be problematic. There are really great ways to lobby and show what you're working on that are safe, secure, that create a narrative that is really going to prove your company's worth versus going in and just being like, we're right. Nothing else is going to work but us. It's like, that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Yeah. I also heard you guys are working to start an incubator, right? Would you like to share a little bit more on that side? What's the direction you're excited about? Yeah, from uh, from the origins of the fund, something that we realized is that we're so excited by, I think crypto and fintech especially, we're so excited by different areas that have a lot of, everyone talks about getting the next billion people into crypto, right? No one really thinks about what that actually means. That means getting the infrastructure right. That means getting a lot of the, the work with helping turning crypto into a really regulated and yeah. More protected financial ecosystem mm-hmm. and the work that has to go into that I think means a lot of different things from an incubation perspective we luckily with fintech day and our networks like we've have a really great stable of operators that have a lot of experience a lot of a lot of repeat founders a lot of folks that are itching to start their first company a lot of people that are not itching to start companies but be on the early teams and pairing those folks with what our research team does which is really in-depth and thoughtful analysis on different problem areas both in terms of different geographies that have different problems. Right now we're writing a report on Latin America and different problems that different countries have in in the financial ecosystem there. Um, 
So really diving deep on the problems and working with the potential founders and operators and saying, hey, here are these different problem areas that we're seeing that we have a lot of research in. We know that we can help you get your first customers. We know that we can help you get your compliance and regulatory stack right. We know that we can help you go to market. Let's figure out if there's a way that we can work together. I think it's also a testament to me and Stevie's like operational backgrounds. I think we love building and we the opportunity cost of us not being founders was very, we've had a couple ideas that I think are really good. And we definitely love building and helping things get from zero to one. And I think that incubation definitely scratches that itch where we can get a product to market, work with our partners and our teams to see if this is actually viable business and then hopefully spin it out into a really successful company. I think our perspective on incubation, everyone goes for home runs. Everyone's like, oh, we need a billion dollars from this com- from this evaluation, from this one incubated company. I've been thinking a lot more about at-bats, right? I think like in in terms of baseball sense, like you want a lot of at-bats, you want to hit a couple doubles and triples and instead of that big home run. But yeah, I think we're very excited about the incubation aspect, mainly for a chance to like work with the ecosystem and get really interesting ideas off the ground too. Yeah, I think the incubator is for us really important just because it's not just the at-bats like Ian mentioned, it's also creating companies that we know are really going to make the right decisions. And that's maybe that's my type A control freak mind, but it's also really important just because we see so many companies and I'm just like, that could have really helped people. You, I think when you do start to think about woulda, coulda, shoulda, I don't like that conversation, but sometimes it is, wow, that actually could have worked with a couple of different decisions. And I think we have the privilege of having a lot of people in our network who've had those woulda, coulda, shoulda moments. And I think experienced operators and experienced ex-founders really do bring something to ideas that unfortunately sometimes people right out of college don't always understand and wind up making mistakes that, you know, people could have mentored them probably around. What are the like future trends that you would found interesting? Mentioned like CAML, I think that space. There's a lot of companies doing a lot around that, but I think there's a still a lot of improvements to be made in that yeah. in that area. Something yeah. that I've been really fascinated with is like everyone. The biggest thing in fintech over the last couple of years has been banking as a service, providing the right infrastructure layer so that developers can come in and easily create financial products, whether mm-hmm. it's a deposit account, credit card, debit card, whatever you want. Right? No one's really thought about that from a crypto perspective. I think there are a couple no. of companies that are thinking about it, but not no one's thinking about crypto as a service almost. So thinking a little bit about what that looks like, whether it's something like enabling self-custody as a service, enabling XYZ as a service, enabling bank partnerships with crypto as a service, things like that. So I think there's a lot of untapped areas in that infrastructure layer of crypto that can really help the ecosystem get off the ground. I also think there's a lot of untapped areas in the consumer experience too. I think as someone who ran a media company, I think that Web3 and crypto solves a ton of different problems around content creation, content management, content organization, and working with your community. And also just, I think, on the community layer side too, I think there's a lot of untapped areas around enabling your community to make decisions together, enabling your community to work together to solve problems and things like that, that I think crypto is really great at calculating micro interactions in a digital community. Crypto is really great at basically uh, digital coordination. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of untapped areas that we're excited to explore from a research perspective. So the way we start out the incubator is we research things first and then we think, okay, does this make sense to start Mm -hmm. thinking about as a company? Most often the answer is probably going to be no, but (laughs) but I think that's because we have a high bar for what a business is, which is really important too as an incubator. Yeah, I think it's really that. It's the high bar, but it's also giving, again, those at-bats to just see what works, see what doesn't work. I think the biggest thing that I really think about in terms of what are we incubating and what are the trends and what are the things that I see coming down the pipeline, I think this FTX situation has really made it apparent that we are going to have to rebuild a lot of the crypto infrastructure in a different way. Um And so it's like, how do we rebuild the system in a way that is more efficient, more effective, and more protectionary while, again, maintaining those philosophical kind of benchmarks of crypto and DeFi? And what does that look like? How do we do that? How do we actually merge those two worlds while making it a stable system for people have securely put their money in? And so I think a lot about that recently. I, I really do think about how are we going to make it so that this never happens again? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the other thing that Stevie and I have been talking a ton about is transparency. Well, I think the the transparency breeds trust is something that I'm like very philosophically aligned with. I think that the crypto ecosystem needs to rebuild trust a lot after this FTX debacle, and a lot of the way to do that is the transparency that blockchain provides. But there's a lot of different nuances around it. A lot of companies don't want to be too transparent in terms of like competitors and stuff like that. I think it's being transparent with the right folks. But I think there's a lot of different ways that a potential company could help clients and customers be more transparent with their assets and where things are. So I think that's something that Stevie and I have been thinking a lot about over the last couple days and weeks too. Yeah, we were thinking about this before FTX. I think I have always told people if you really want to make something work in crypto, you've got a few years to do it. I think that changes now. I think now it's it really is really learning from the past mistakes and creating a new effective system. And that's a, I think we've both been a little melancholy about that fact. It's just it's a closing of an era, but it's one of those things where it's an era that probably needed to be closed. Yeah. It, the, the question that me and Stevie have been talking about is, is this era really that good? Because it seems like it's a lot of get rich quick schemes. And I don't necessarily yeah. know that's good for an ecosystem. It's great for individuals that get rich quick, but it seems like that's A, not that many people. B, it seems like that comes at the expense of their consumers and their users. Yeah. So that's not I mean, it. I think that kind of culture, it somehow prevents the majority of people even being interested in crypto, right? Like a lot of people, like talking about crypto at the beginning, people were just, oh, that's scams. Yeah, and it's then either like, scams when, or they're criminal. Yeah, <laughs> or something like FTX, you know, that happened. It's a setback. It's a and, massive bre breach of trust with the yeah, user. Yeah, it really is. It's Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think like from a really high level banking history perspective, like most financial ecosystems take a couple yeah. reps to get off the ground, yeah. including the U.S. dollar. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That is why I say like the U.S. dollar is a really good historical kind of overview of how to actually run a good currency. No matter what anyone wants to say about the United States or our political leanings, left, right, centerist, it doesn't really matter. Sideways, <laughs> up, down, around, do not care. All I can tell you is our dollar is actually really stable and really secure compared to many places on this earth. And that is something that like, it's right in front of us as Americans that we take for granted that we have. But yeah, there's definitely been some false starts. There's definitely been false starts. There's definitely been the fact that we did have to learn what a bank run was, whereas like that had already happened in Holland. Yeah. It had already happened in France. They'd already been there, done that. And it took us until the Great Depression to really learn that yeah. lesson. Yeah. Almost 150 years in. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting yeah. there. But I do think it is something that like having a stable economic force or a stable currency is there are ways to do it. The way we did it with the US dollar doesn't necessarily mean that's how we have to do it with cryptocurrency. I think especially if you look at Ethereum and Bitcoin trying to do things in kind of unique ways. It's yeah, they're really trying to figure it out and iron it out. And I think that's where you know, there's nothing wrong with them trying new things. And I think we should applaud that versus hitting the different currencies against each other and saying, you're doing it wrong, I'm doing it right. It's, you know what, the only way we're going to get any of them right is if we all try different things. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So speaking of the trend, so I'm actually curious, uh, so Stevie's background in biotech. So do you see any synergy between crypto and biotech? Yeah, I think it's really an interesting place. And it's something I actually thought a lot about this when I was at ACOG, because medical records obviously are really important. Getting new technologies into practice is really important. But how do you actually do that in an effective way? We are a large nation. We're a large world. How do you actually make uptake work? How do you make interoperability work? Crypto, Web3, the, the being on the chain, those are all really unique mm -hmm. ways and systems that we can think about unique health Healthcare problems. Healthcare is just, it's an ancient dinosaur. It's an ancient dinosaur that nobody really understands, but it's also really hard to get new technologies integrated into healthcare. Yeah. But unfortunately, and fortunately, healthcare is changing so rapidly because of how money is made in healthcare. And I think that opens up some really unique opportunities for us to really think about how are we building new technology around web3 around crypto around the chain how are we getting how are we getting healthcare data correct how are we think about all the hipaa violations that have happened in the past just 6 months i feel like there's a new one 
probably every time I open a healthcare newsletter, at least one line is about a HIPAA violation somewhere and about data being stolen or used inappropriately. I think it's really important that we master that. And I think the elephant in the room is we can use blockchain technologies for that. So that's a really interesting thing. And I think I think the era of the EHR, our electronic healthcare record is not I don't think it's long for this world. I think people are starting to realize that it was developed as a payment structure. It has nothing to do with actually your the quality of your care. Mm-hmm. It's a way for doctors to get paid. It's a way for healthcare systems to get paid. It's a way for payers to figure out what they owe your providers. It's it doesn't actually serve any beneficial purpose in the care of humans. And so that's where I do think technology is going to start to step in and be like, there are easier ways to do that. I think we can all acknowledge that. Ian, uh, so you have had a lot of experience in building communities. So uh, how do you take that experience, you know, transfer to what you're doing with the fund and what have you been doing lately? So it's really interesting. I, I think there's so many different ways that funds can leverage content and community now. It, there, There's obviously the Andreessen Horowitz way of doing really high quality content for f- founders and operators. Then you see the, the flip side of it where Bessemer is doing a scout program through a DAO. I think those are all really good examples of content and community. I think what we're thinking about is not just, I think education is super important to us, not just for financial education, but also becoming a founder, being an operator, things like that. So we're thinking a lot about like, how do we take on these, pass along the lessons of our friends and our people in our network that have built really big companies and then transfer those along to the folks that are just getting started in their career. I think the other thing that we want to talk about is like the unique founder experience. Like being a founder is really hard. It took a lot of, a big toll on both me and Stevie, like physically, mentally. I started my company in like the beginning of COVID pretty much. So I was working in my house and now I cannot wait to get out into an office. I'm like, I'm going to lose my, we have, we live in LA and there's two bedrooms that we have that are pretty much like spare, like office rooms. I'm like, I can't work here. We need to go somewhere. And I think being really honest, I don't, I think founders are very honest in a private setting. Like when they're with their other, like very close founder friends and they're talking about like a lot of the struggles they go through. I think that we want to be a bit more transparent and we want to help foster community of founders so that they can talk to each other whether we're there or not. I think we just want to make that a lot more accessible. But yeah, from an overall content community perspective, we think that, I think from a content perspective, we want to educate people in the sectors and we want to drive entrepreneurship in these sectors, right? We want to help start companies there. So we want to increase the delta between like the knowledge gap, right? Mm -hmm. Of, okay, I want to start a real estate company, but I know nothing about real estate regulation. Like we should have eBooks and things like that available for founders pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And then on the community side, it's like, how can we all work together to not just improve our companies, better empower the ecosystem as well. Something I'm really passionate about is like operator angel investors. I think operating invest- investors are like a, the li- operators in general are the lifeblood of the tech ecosystem. But I think operator angels are so they give probably 10, 20, 30 K checks max. I've never heard of a 30 K check from a, an operator that's just getting started. But the value that they bring to cap tables and the founders is so tremendous, right? They see everything in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. They can help you get your first customers, whether it's their own company or companies that they're friends with. They help you recruit. They help you validate different ideas. They are act, they act as a great sounding board. So that's something we really want to foster, a really strong ecosystem of operators that are eager to help out portfolio companies and be on the cap table with us as well. A lot of fun ideas, a lot of really interesting areas to explore. But yeah, I'm very passionate about just overall content community being really valuable for a fund. I think uh, there are a lot of unique ways that we think that we can add a fund and interesting layer to it too. I also have a question for Stevie. Three quarters of users in the in the crypto industry are male. No, you personally. <laughs> and I also read your tweets. I think you are an advocate for females to get into the field. Yes, yeah, so many you- tweets about this. <laughs> Yeah. How do you think we can bridge the gap to attract more yeah. females you know, into this field? Yeah. Okay. So, ooh, uh, so I really do think this is a huge opportunity for women. Ian has had to hear this rant many times, but women have really been locked out of traditional wealth for quite some time, especially in the United States. Our laws around finances were not really favorable to women at all. And I think that's something that people don't always understand. Like they don't understand that our own parents like our own mothers couldn't get credit cards in the United States for a really long time like it had to be in your husband's name you couldn't open a bank account without a man 
like signing for it. it like things like that are just really lost on a lot of people. It, and the fun fact is, like, I when we first met, I was learning all about this, and I thought I knew a lot about finance, right? And I had no idea that this is how this worked. I'm like, this is so messed up. It's funny, Stevie did a personal check investment, and she had to tell me because your spouse has to know. And I'm like, you why? Are you, I was like, why? I was like, I literally was like, okay, babe, like, why are you telling? Good job. <laughs> Do you, I don't know what you want from me. She's like, no, I legally have to tell you this now. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I was like, yeah, I need you to sign this form, and he was just like, what? And I'm like. Oh, yeah. So you're not aware. <laughs> the patriarchy is alive and well in our financial system. It is definitely something. And it's interesting to see because I think there are groups of women who are trying really hard to onboard other women into crypto, into Web3, into the spaces. There's, I'm a little self-critical here because I think that onboarding really does include financial education. Onboarding does mean making women understand the outcomes might not always be what they are. There are risks involved. And I don't like that I think something we've latched onto as women in Web3 and women in crypto is we do want to make communities because we want to make this a, a really open, safe space for women. But at the same time, it, the commingling of social aspects and financial outcomes is dangerous. It also really makes women make decisions based on peer pressure mm. that aren't always helpful. It makes women feel like they have to be in these groups to be accepted into these communities. Or, oh, if I'm not in this community or I don't have the, this NFT, then nobody will take me seriously in the crypto community. And I think that is also really bad. I think also a lot of people in the space don't understand that it is we're really working against hundreds of years of, again, financial obstruction for women. And how do we actually treat women like they are the smart, wonderful, amazing, powerful people they are? Women don't need educated on what – I think we sometimes dumb down crypto for women and it's – Yes. Like, I why? I feel like we dumb it down. We make prettier words. We make go girl. We make like girl boss. We make – it's just eye-rolly. It's like – Women want to learn how to be taken seriously as financial leaders, and so this is not doing it. Putting into it is definitely something like that is what leads to women being doxxed. Is what leads to men like eye rolling when women go to crypto conferences and not taking them seriously when they make concerns, really valid concerns, public. It's something that I think is really. It is an organic problem, but it is again, it's a long-standing problem, and so I think everyone owes it to not just women, but all minorities to think about how we're approaching cryptocurrency and Web3. Yeah, I think also I've noticed that, and I think from the like personality perspective, and I think women sometimes tend to be a little bit more like self-critical. Yeah. It's, oh, if I don't know this 100%, women just prefer to not yeah. state their opinion. So I think that also gives people the impression yeah. that, oh, maybe they just don't know. Yeah. Oh my God. It's really interesting. So something that I thought was really funny about three months ago, someone had found one of my wallets and they didn't know it was mine. They still don't know whose it is, but they were like, who's making all these really smart decisions? And it was in all the comments. It was like, this dude is so smart. This bro is so smart. And I'm like, wow, not a single person in any of these comments was like, this might be a woman. I was just like, wow, you all are – thank you. I'm so proud that you really like my decision-making. But the assumption that it was a dude was comical. It was hilarious. Yeah, and it's even funnier because even – it's beyond crypto too. I mean, I, you see it a lot in the tech ecosystem as well. Someone DM Stevie and was like, I'd love to talk to Ian to talk to, about his regulatory and legal work. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like I have not done anything. Like maybe you should talk to the person who clerked at the Supreme Court. I don't know. But like everyone thinks Stevie is the regulatory and compliance expert here. And, and our split of responsibilities is a lot of fun. And I learn a lot from Stevie. But I think even in the tech ecosystem, I'm just – what are you – thinking that just because my wife is like doing the fun with me doesn't mean that she's just someone asked you if in, at a crypto conference if you're like marketing oh, for yeah, the fun yeah. I get if I'm a marketer mm. for the fun a lot I'm like oh so you're in marketing did you help with the event and I'm like I get insulted because our marketing is good and I do it so. <laughs> he does all the marketing I'm like he does the marketing and if I planned an event nobody would show up okay maybe like my four friends that I could force to come <laughs> I know for a fact that there are very powerful women in crypto and there are women who have a lot of money in crypto but the assumption that only men are making these transactions happen and are doing complicated work in the areas just 
it's inaccurate. It's not helpful. And it's led us to this place where inequality is really festered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, and I think this is still going to take years to oh. change what people think and then change the, the, the situation, yeah. but you know, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah, I do think it'll happen. Yeah. I do think it'll happen the more we have smart women out there talking very publicly about what they're working on, about how to make good choices. I think that, again, I do think it is stop dumbing down it for women. Stop, we need to stop talking, honestly. A lot of people love to talk about like how to make it female friendly, how to make, how do we onboard women? Okay, so what do you think we do? How do we onboard women? The answer just seems to be let's dumb it down. I don't let's understand. dumb it down. Let's or make like, it pink. Yeah. Let's have a party. And it's just like. And I think CVM mentioned this earlier. This goes for women, but I think overall in like the digital, the tech community probably overall too. Like the amount of like social validation people need through through these mechanisms and oh, I need to be in this community because they throw sick parties and stuff like that. That's not healthy for the ecosystem at all. And bringing that to like a onboarding layer of, oh, we want to onboard these minority groups or whatever groups really you want by getting them into parties is not healthy, right? Like it's not really teaching them the right reasons to get into this ecosystem in right. the first place. I think the, there's a difference in the culture that technology, the technology was created super agnostically, but the culture is super male oriented. All the parties at Miami are all around like how let's make sure dudes have fun. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about like the parties in this space, it makes me very uncomfortable because a lot of the parties usually hire parties and that doesn't make other women more comfortable because other women are in that situation so yeah I, I think that does not help women getting a bigger foothold it doesn't help minorities either when i was starting the fintech community it was starting out like we had the first 50 people it was like 60 70 percent men i'm like oh shit what happened like how did i i blame myself a lot but and i went to a mentor of mine and he was like, yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Like it actually takes a lot of work to have gender and racial parity in these communities because it's so easy for like you to onboard the next 25 people and they all look and sound and are the same way. So I think it's something that I realized really early on in community building. If you want to have the right sort of ecosystem that feels very inclusive, you have to go out and be, make it inclusive. It's not going to happen like in, in it's not going to happen organically. It's not innately in an in open ecosystem. You have to go out and find the people that like are connected into those spaces and invite them and invite their friends and stuff like that. So it took a lot of work, but we reached like 50-50 gender parity between men and women pretty pretty quickly but i had to go find the other 25 women to balance it out and i asked hey do you know any other women that would be great fits like blah blah, blah. and it took a good amount of like legwork but i think that the benefits were really profound overall yeah something i'm i really just keep talking about is if we just have a bubble of the same people building then what they're building isn't actually yeah. it has no utility in society mm -hmm. um so it is really we need to have gender we need to have gender parity. We need to have demographic parity. We need to have socioeconomic parity when you are looking at who's building in the startup space, in the tech space, in any kind of space. Especially what I always really hate is when we get decks from people who say we're building a financial tool for everyone and it's all white men that went to Harvard. And when I get decks of, oh, we're building this, we're building this neobank for women or something like that, right? And it's like all dudes. And I'm like, where's the woman here that you're building for? I'm just like, yeah. what is going on here? And then they're shocked when they're shocked when the product doesn't work or the idea fails. And you're just like, you absolutely have no idea what the rest of, you don't even know what the consumer wants that you're after. So I'm really wary of when we get decks that are very monochromatic. Or the worst is like an advisor that's a woman that like it just feels like that they tacked it yeah, on like a token yeah. woman. And I'm just like, OK, this is like even more disrespectful almost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so we are really sensitive to that just because, again, if you're saying you're building for everyone, then you're building a team that I mean, the fund is predominantly out. women I yeah build, like, two dudes, <laughs> including myself <laughs> and i don't it's funny because i think stevie was like how does that make you feel i honestly haven't noticed like i don't really think about that kind of stuff i have other things to think of like, good don't yeah. notice you don't need to notice that <laughs> maybe this is stevie's whole ploy yes it really is <laughs> i don't buy it it makes my life a lot easier <laughs> It's been uh, really helpful to have all the women on the team because they get on my ass about a lot of shit that I need to get done. Yeah, TV, so. I feel like there's been a lot of personal growth. Just enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> we have one question we ask all our speakers, which is, what do you think the like 
blockchain technology and Web3 tools can help to address sustainability issues? Yeah, I'm happy to take this one. I think that blockchain can really make a tre tremendous impact on the unbanked, underbanked, not just in the US, but globally too. There's so many regions that, you know, like that where you're just far away from your bank bank branch and it, going to this bank branch is going to take a week's journey, right? And like everyone has mobile phones now. We need to obviously make that even more of a thing. But I think the thing is with all these mobile phones, like getting banking on your phone, getting these access to financial instruments and financial products from your mobile device is such a natural extension. And I think crypto really makes that barrier even more dramatically lower, I think. And I think because it not just it gives you access, but gives you the power to make those decisions without having someone else do it for you and gives you a bit more control. And I think a lot of in a lot of developing countries that control and that ownership over your own assets is really critical. It's funny, everyone used to say, oh, uh, make sure you keep like a bundle of cash stored under your mattress. Like that doesn't exist now. But like in, in theory, like it's a bit... So. <laughs> it, in theory, it's a bit more doable with crypto, right? Because you can have your own assets and keep it on your own. If you're keeping on, if you're keep buying and selling different assets and stuff like that and keeping it on your own hosted wallet, like the, no one can take that away from you, right? Unless you lose your mobile device, which is a completely different story that's happened to me. <laughs> but I think that unlocking these sort of, I, like I said earlier, we all, always talk about the next billion crypto users, but the next billion crypto users are probably not going to look like this existing crypto user base. And I think being really mindful of that is really important and providing financial access and, and opening up the financial ecosystem for people all over the world is something that is still such a big problem. And I think is a big issue around wealth generation and, and helping people reach different levels of financial empowerment. So I think once you get that base level really established, there's so much you can unlock. So I think there's a, it's really exciting. It's a lot of work and it's going to be really hard to do, but I think the payoff will be really great for society as well. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. So thank you guys so much oh, here. Yeah. Today. Thank you. Yeah, this, this is so much fun. So much fun. Yeah. I love talking to you guys and hope uh, our audience also enjoy this episode. Yeah. Same here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining this episode of SustainaDAO Non-Fungible Talk. This show is brought to you by SustainaDAO, a decentralized protocol that promotes social progress, environmental balance, and economic growth with blockchain technology. I'm your host, Clarice Chiu. And I'm your host, Ling Ning. If you like the content, subscribe and give us a follow on Twitter at SustainerDAO. We also have premium content, including blockchain research, member-exclusive events, and more with NFT Pass Access. For more information, please visit our website, diesel.org.